Father, our hearts are glad because of you. And we give back to you in that gladness because all good things come from your hand. Lord, this act of worship is something that uh, we are delighted that you give us to participate in, that you allow us to be a part of this process. And so we pray now that you would bless the giver and the gift today, that you would take these things that we have given and that you would use them to accomplish all that you intend for them. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 35. And just so you know, we are not going to finish Jeremiah before Advent. If you hadn't figured out the trend there, I knew this um, probably back in the summer that there was just no way to get through the entire book without forcing us uh, to move through it. So we'll pause for Advent in the coming weeks and we'll come back to Jeremiah uh, after that in the new year before we move on. This is God's Word, Jeremiah chapter 35. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers. Then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Dalia, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Massasiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither shall you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem." Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, and they have not listened. I have called to them, and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, would you help us to listen? Unlike Judah, who has failed again and again, we see, and we recognize this in our own lives, Lord, we need your help to cause us to listen and hear. So would you give us ears? Give us hearts that understand. Make us tender before you as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I've said this a number of times, and once again we see Jeremiah is not written chronologically. Just as chapter 34 took us back in time, chapter 35 takes us back a bit further, back to Jehoiakim's reign. And we've seen this in the second half of the scroll or second half of the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah is dealing with things more thematically. And so we looked at, for example, the book of Consolation, chapters 30 to 33 together. Chapter 34 and 35 go together, as I hope we'll see today, where it creates a contrasting story with the previous story, if you remember last week, of how the people, um, they, they, they were... Uh, they, 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 they disobeyed in a sense doubly, right? They had not only kept God's covenant that he established with them at Sinai to not hold another Jew in bond to, for a debt more than six years. They had failed in that. They weren't keeping that. It goes back generations. But then they decide for whatever reason to create their own man-made covenant and they even break that. So there's almost this double disobedience. So Jeremiah places that event just now before this one in chapter 35 to create this contrast between a deeply depraved Judah who has perpetually disobeyed and now this interesting sect of Rechabites who are celebrated for their commitment to what is a human tradition, a human set of rules. And because of this sharp contrast and then the public setting in which it happens, Jeremiah's told to bring them into the temple courts to, 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 for all this to, to play out. This now serves as another object lesson for the people of Judah, where they are taken to school by the Lord to teach them that they might listen and obey. This whole notion is very basic to our human existence. Will we listen to our Creator and will we obey His instructions? We see this all the way back to the garden and that test that Adam and Eve failed, and the message has been repeated again and again. And we see how throughout the Old Testament, the people would get off track and they would turn to other things to to try and appease God when they got desperate, but they wouldn't simply listen and obey. And we find that pattern in our own lives as well. The word here that's used a number of times in this chapter for listen or hear is the Hebrew word shema. And you might recognize that because it's attributed to a passage in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is known as the Shema. And it is a uh, kind of a, uh, a preface to what would then be the, the law or a portion of the law that was given. And the word is translated typically listen or hear, uh, but it's also translated obey. So there's this idea that it's it's we first 
hear and then we listen. I don't, I'm not sure. I think that's the way I understand it. You know, you can hear and not listen, right? You cannot pay attention to what's being said. So we hear and then we listen and then we obey. And it's that whole thought. But its essence is first hearing and listening, right? The, the idea that we tune ourselves in. And of course, that's explained in, in, in the fact that they, I've sent the prophets over and over. You haven't heard. You haven't listened. So this is the word that's being used here. When Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema, he followed it with these words, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The message that God gives to his people is always in that covenant language. It's rooted in that language of love. I, I, I loved you with an everlasting love. I will be your God. You will be my people. We see this repeated over and over. And so he's calling them to love them because he has loved them. If you think of the law that we read this morning, what is the preface there on the second page? Before it even gets into, you shall have no other gods before me, it's first. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? He's reminding them, I'm the one who's redeemed you. I'm the one who loves you. Therefore, love me with all your heart and strength. So it's not given in a vacuum, but it's always in the context of covenant love. He's demonstrated that love, and so that our love becomes a byproduct. As John says in his his epistle, we love because he first loved us. And so from this call then to love God with all our heart and soul, the people are then instructed to guide their children to, in a sense, discover the opportunities that are all around them to remind them of who their loving God is. And what they did with this was take it a little bit too literally. They created things called phylacteries and mezuzahs. If you've ever seen uh, uh, this, this practice is still done to this day. It's it's kind of a tourist thing. If you go to Jerusalem to the Western Wall, you'll see not only Jews do this, but Christians will join in this as well, tying phylacteries to their arm. They use leather straps in their little boxes, and inside those boxes are tiny scrolls with scripture on them. They do the same things on their heads with a little box that goes on their forehead. It's a literal following of this. You know, put it on your hand, tie it to your hand, put it as frontlets between your eyes. They wear it right there, and it misses the whole point. The mezuzah is the same thing. It's a tiny scroll of Scripture that's put in a little box and and tacked to the doorpost of the home, and they usually will touch and kiss it when they come in. And in one way, it's it's a good reminder, but it misses the whole mark of the command. The point of the command was symbolic. It was Hey, you know, keep my word in front of your eyes. Look through it, the whole lens, everything you do. Tie it to your hand so that everything you go to do with your hand is done according to my word. That was what the message was. You know, put it on the doorpost of your home. Wasn't that it needs to literally be on the doorpost of our home, but that everything in your home would be impacted and guided by my word. In other words, the Jews were instructed not to simply go to the temple and practice their religion. It was to permeate all of their lives. Keep my ways ever before you. And instead, they turned it into things that they could check off, that they could measure. I did that. 
I tied the phylactery on. I said my prayer. I put it on my head. I, I kissed the mezuzah. I do it every day. I've done that. See, walking by faith and loving God in a way that uh, we, 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 we love others and care for others and, and, and we steward all that he's entrusted to us well is, is what genuine obedience looks like. It's when we listen and hear. It produces fruit. It's not just checkboxes that we can tick, not just tasks that we can measure. This was the Shema, hear, O Israel. And this is the word that appears nine times in the chapter here, but in the book of Jeremiah, it's there over 4,000 times. It's clearly something that God is wanting his people to hear. So here in chapter 35, it becomes one of the themes for this next object lesson that Jeremiah would carry out before the people of Judah. It's publicly uh, uh, carried out in, there in the temple courts that everyone might see and hear. And of course, it's written in his scroll that was then carried into exile with them so that the people might read it in the coming years and understand. And that what we today might read it as well. So may we have ears to hear. May we listen to and hear from the God who loves us with an everlasting love. Hear, O people of God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So now looking in verse 1, this is backing up sometime to Jehoiakim's reign, probably toward the end. I won't go into all the details as why we think that, but probably around 600 B.C., somewhere in there, right, 598, those, those two years, right before he's removed, Zedekiah comes in and takes over at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And the instruction that's given involves this group called the Rechabites. And we know very little about them except for what we're told here and then a few other uh, references to them in the, uh, in the historical books. But they are descendants of Rechab, who was a Kenite. Uh, this was the group of people that descended from the father-in-law of Moses, Hobab. And they were nomadic, as the, the text describes to us. They had commitments so that they, had, they were kind of their own people. They were unique, a sect. They were possibly a sect with, with uh, a Judaism as their religion, but the text doesn't tell us that. The text speaks nothing of their commitment to Yahweh or their faith in Him. In fact, it only commends them in that they followed the rules that their father set before them. Now, they attribute this to Jonadab or Jehonadab. His name's written both ways. You might see it uh, both ways as their founder. He's the one who established these rules, and he did this about 250 years ago. So he lived 250 years before the time that's recorded in Jeremiah 35. So just for some reference, about as long as America has been around, this people has been living this way, living according to these rules. Now, the phrase, depending on what translation you have, it may say house of Rechabites or clan or family. It can mean both um, and often does mean a people group. But it's important to mention because one of the commitments, one of the commands that Jehonadab had given them was that they were not to live in houses. They were to live in tents. They were to be uh, uh, nomads. They were to travel, to sojourn. And so here we see that they've had to make a change, make an adjustment because of Nebuchadnezzar. The threat had become at some point so severe that they retreated into the city, into Jerusalem to live. Now, it's possible that they were living in houses. I think that's not just possible, it's quite likely. Some have suggested that maybe they were living in the streets in tents. They still were carrying out that practice. But uh, if you've ever been into the uh, ruins of the ancient Near East, you know that the streets didn't have much room for that. 
So there, I mean, just pragmatically, there, there, there wasn't room for street living. And so it's, it's most likely that they had not only moved into the city, which of course was against the command, but they had also moved into uh, houses temporarily. Now, in terms of understanding what this group appeared like before the people, I think they stood out. I think they were noticeable. If you think of how we notice the Amish, and if you've ever lived or traveled to a, a, an area of the country where the Amish live, you know who the Amish are. They do things a little differently. Uh, they don't do some things that we do, and they do things that we don't do. And so you, you kind of notice them. And I think that's how the Rechabites would have been seen. They, it was noticeable. Uh, you knew who a Rechabite was. They were different from the average Judean citizen. And the pattern of their lifestyle involved not drinking alcohol, living in tents, not building houses, not farming, not having a vineyard, anything that would have rooted them or, or tied them down. And the reasoning that was passed down that's spoken of in this text is that they would live long lives. And so even though it's not specified, implied in that is this idea that there was some kind of protection in this that they were living differently in order to preserve themselves. And that's why the Father had done this. We're not told that. We don't know. But we can understand, again, practically speaking, why that's certainly a way to achieve that. You know, if you want to not be influenced by the city life or the a certain uh, uh, cultural element, that you can remove yourself, you can protect yourself from it. And you might even say it's our tendency as humans to do this. You travel anywhere around the world and you will see human beings do this to some degree or another. We tend to congregate around people like ourselves. And there are both positives and negatives to this approach, but this is what the Rechabites were doing. Now, it's important to note in this episode that the Lord neither denounces nor commends the lifestyle. What does he commend? He commends their obedience. They're keeping the command passed down from their parents throughout the generation. That's what he's commending. And so God is holding them up as an object lesson before Judah that they might see and learn that if other people can obey their earthly fathers, then you guys can obey your heavenly father. Now, in this example, we see we've been talking about this a little bit in Sunday school, and I kind of hinted at this in, in class this morning. So if you were here, you're, you're kind of ahead of the curve here. But, but this is an example of how we understand in Scripture that there are times where things are described and sometimes where things are prescribed. And we need to be able to discern between the two. As you might imagine, throughout history, there have been people uh, with good intention who have read this chapter in Jeremiah and said, I'm going to live like a Rechabite. No more alcohol for me. I'm going to sell the house. We're going to get a tent. We're going to be nomads, no vineyard, no planting, no nothing. I'm going to do this so that I'll be blessed by God. But God is not commending this behavior. He's not prescribing it. The text is simply describing it for us. What is being held out is this commendation of obedience. Hear and follow instructions. That is the message that's being held up for Judah and for us. But we have to be careful and we have to distinguish what that means. Obedience can be tricky because while it is always the right thing to obey God, we can and often do obey in the wrong way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many times do we obey without faith? We can obey with wrong motives. We can try to earn God's favor or try and put Him in our debt. Like, if I do this, then God owes me. 
We'd never say it out loud, but we certainly think this way. We can obey God in front of the eyes of other people to impress them with the motive of wanting people to think highly of us. Do we act differently in front of others than we do in private? We can even obey God to shame others with the motive of hurting them. This is why we can't talk about obedience without talking about our hearts. That's why Jesus, when he sums up the law, he says it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so biblical, God-honoring, true obedience is that which flows from a heart that loves God and loves others. That's where we want to end up. That's the target. That doesn't mean that we can say, well, I don't have to obey when I don't feel it. We're called to obey, period. But what we want, our desire is that we do it out of love. And if you're a parent, you understand this because you, that's what you want. You, you want your child to obey you because they love you, not because you made them or forced them. And that's often what creates so much of the tension in the home, isn't it? Children aren't sure that you love them. They doubt your love because they don't want to do what you've said. But the goal is that it's done out of love. Where do we start when we rear our kids? Do we start when they come out explaining to them that we want them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as their self? No, because they can't comprehend that, can, we? can they? Right? We start children with the basics. We teach them things like don't run in the street, but always look both ways. We tell them don't play with matches or a lighter. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Don't gulp your food. Chew it slowly so you don't choke. Wash your hands. Cover your mouth when you sneeze. We give them instruction. We put up parameters to guide and protect them so they aren't harmed. But then slowly over time, we begin to teach them how love directs us and how we relate to God and how we relate to each other. We don't want them not hitting their siblings just because we said so. We want them to love their siblings. We want them not to uh, do X, Y, or Z because of, of simple rules, but we want it to be born out of love. Love is a much better guide than simply giving rules. It's true in our relationships. Don't we want to be loved for who we are and not because we have to? That's what uh, uh, that illustration that, that Piper gives about coming home with flowers for his wife and comes at the door and she greets him and says, thank you. And he says, well, it's, it's my duty. Just suck all the air out, right? I mean, it totally undoes it. We don't, in our relationships, we don't want to be loved out of duty. We want to be loved out of true love. And that's why we understand that love is the sign of Christian maturity. Love is a sign of Christian maturity. Love is able to understand, to relate to to speak at the right time, to listen at the right time, to be silent when it's appropriate. Rules are necessary in the process and they do not disappear. Rules don't go away, but love is the goal. The law served as a tutor to direct them, but love was the goal. And it's the same as we grow up in Christ. We learn to love God more and more where it becomes our delight to do what He says. In part because we see and we understand that He loves us and what He's telling us to do all along was for our good. It was for our blessing. And so over and over, God has been saying to His people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And they have ignored Him 
and fail to listen to him and plug their ears. And so he takes them to preschool. He takes them to school with this object lesson of the Rechabites. The test for this clan that he puts before them is this whole idea of drinking. He shows them this incredible hospitality. He sets out this banquet feast that it appears like and bowls and pitchers, this, this picture of abundance. And we, we understand this in our own culture, but in the ancient Near East and even in, the, in the, uh, the, the Near East today, hospitality is a really big deal. You don't ever want to offend your host. If your host offers you something, you drink it, you eat it, you don't sniff it, you don't go, ooh. You know, I mean, you take whatever is given and you're, you ooh and you ah. That's part of the culture. So for them to say, we will not drink any wine was a significant act on their behalf, on their, on their, on their behalf or on their part. They then tell him all of the commands. Uh, that their father, Jonadab, had given them. And they said, we haven't done anything. Uh, we've, you know, we've done everything our father commanded us. We haven't broken any of the rules. Again, what God commends is this, that they have kept the promise, so to speak, that they have kept the rules, these earthly commands that have been given to them. Now, in the previous chapter, Judah was called out for breaking not just the, the, the commandment that God had given them, but even when they made their own rule that looked the same, they broke it as well. And so now the contrast is he holds out the example of the Rechabites before Judah as if to say, if these people can keep these man-made laws for a couple of centuries, you have no excuse for all the law-breaking that you've done. We might think of sports fans who are super committed. They watch games, they go attend games, but when it comes to worship on Sunday, uh, they make excuses We might think of the discipline exercised in investments and planning, but without generosity and giving. We might know someone who has tons of theological knowledge, all the ins and outs of Scripture, but there's no kindness, no compassion. What about the person who reads their Bible every day and maybe even brags about it, but they gossip about others? They belittle people who are different than them judge those who struggle differently than they do, criticize anyone and everyone who thinks differently, and on and on and on. The point is, we're all guilty. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short. The message of this object lesson is for us as well. None of us have obeyed. So Jeremiah, after meeting with the Rechabites, is then given instruction by the Lord in verse 12 to then take and declare to Judah that they might see this object lesson. And the Lord says to them in verse 13, Will you not receive instruction and listen, Shema, to my words? Then in verse 14, he says, You haven't, Shema, listen to me. And then he goes on in verse 15 saying, I've sent the prophets over and over again throughout the generations, not once, not twice, but countless times, but you did not incline your ear or Shema, listen to me, verse 15. Because they have not obeyed, then this coming judgment is fair and just. All the disaster I have pronounced is going to come upon the nation. And as the people would read this book, the scroll of Jeremiah in the coming years while they were in exile, they could see how they got to where they were. Not so they would simply be shamed, but so that shame would lead them to repent. Shame's a tricky thing. It can be damaging. It often is damaging and harmful. Because we often use shame as a manipulation to get people to do what we want in our relationships. 
But all shame isn't bad. When we feel shame before our good and holy God that leads us to repent, it is a good thing. I should feel ashamed for my angry outbursts at fellow drivers. I should feel ashamed when I praise myself before others so they'll know how hard I've worked at something. I should feel ashamed when I needlessly correct someone about some unimportant fact just to show that I possess that knowledge. Shame can be restorative when it leads us to repentance, to turn, to change. We don't need to be in the business, though, of shaming other people. God's Word and His Holy Spirit can do that just fine. So it's not our job to do that. We shouldn't be manipulating. We shouldn't be using it to get what we want out of people. But shame in itself, when used to bring us to repentance through His Spirit's work, according to His Word, is fruitful. So part of the lesson here from the Rechabites is that Judah might sense the shame of their refusal to listen to the Father who loves them, that they might turn back to Him, that they might know that it is He who has loved them with an everlasting love who has been speaking all along, that they might know that it is He whose faithfulness knows no end who has pursued them without stopping, that they might know that it is He who shows mercy without end who waits to restore them and embrace them as the father of the prodigal son. And then just as Judah is blessed by this correction, and yes, it is a blessing. Correction is a blessing. This is a good thing, as painful as it might be. But the Rechabites are also blessed by God with this promise. Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. You might notice that the language is very similar there in verse 19 to what we read of the promise given to the line of David in chapter 33 and the line of the Levites, that they would never uh, lack someone to stand before God. And so it is this picture of endurance. And on that first horizon of fulfillment, we do see someone in, in, uh, in Nehemiah in chapter 3, verse 14. There's a Rechabite that participates in the rebuilding of the wall. They're still around at this point. But ultimately, the promise points to something further on, greater, something better down the road, that there would be one who obeyed perfectly in our place. If all we needed was good and a moral example to follow, then we could just read select stories like these and just try harder. But the problem is, is none of us have obeyed perfectly. No one, that is, except for one. The Rechabites did well. They were commended, but they didn't do it perfectly. They said no to the offer of wine, but we know that they already had to compromise on coming into the city to live there likely into houses against that rule as well. So even they didn't obey perfectly. My point is, is that none of us have. All of us have gone astray. All of us have turned our own way. And yet there was one who did not. The obedience of the Rechabites, as commendable as it was to show Judah their need to repent, still couldn't save them from their sins. It couldn't save anyone. The Rechabites weren't saved by their obedience. Yet there was one who did come, who obeyed perfectly. Jesus, the Messiah, stood in our place and fulfilled the law on our behalf. We often speak of the payment that Jesus made on the cross through his death to atone for our sins. And this is important to talk about. We understand from Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus describes this and then 
And by the way, I kept saying Leviticus this morning. This is what happens when I teach Sunday school. We were in Deuteronomy. I know that now. Uh, but it was this passage here in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 to 12. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, for I've given it for you. My mind mixed that picture up. Uh, but Leviticus says that. Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, no forgiveness of sins. But while Christ's passive obedience through His suffering and death on the cross is vital, we can't neglect His active obedience in our place. You see, Jesus came not only as the Lamb to die, but He also came to obey and fulfill the law in our place. Wherein Adam failed bringing sin into the world, and we have followed in His practice, we have participated in that act of sin, Jesus came to bring life through His righteous obedience in our place. The first man, Adam, this is 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Being conformed into the image of the man of heaven, that is Jesus, is what has taken place and is taking place in our lives as we grow. For everyone who trusts in him, his righteousness becomes ours because of his active obedience on our behalf. He came not only to forgive through atonement, he came to give life through his obedience. As we read this morning, for, his, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What a profound passage. For you who have trusted in Christ alone, the cross and the resurrection declare that you are righteous before God by faith in Jesus who obeyed perfectly in your place. And for you who have never put your trust in Christ, that is, confessed with your mouth, and believed in your heart that He died for your sins and the Father raised Him from the dead, then hear this today. Jesus stands ready to save. By faith in Him, He will forgive all of your sins. And by faith in Him, He will give you His perfect obedience. Forgiveness and righteousness become ours when we come to the cross. It's all of grace. It's all born out of His unending love. We have only to listen, Shema, and believe. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through his selfless love. The Rechabites instruct and remind us not that we need to be better or to try harder, but that we need a rescuer who would obey in our place. And Jesus is that rescuer, and he obeyed perfectly. His obedience is given to us as our reward. It is credited to us that we are now righteous so that we are able to stand in the end. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, our ability to comprehend what Christ has done for us is is so limited. 
We fail to grasp the wealth of the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. To know that not only have our sins been dealt with, forgiven, atoned for, paid, but also that we get His righteousness. It's beyond our understanding, but Lord, we are, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that because of this, we will be able to stand. That we are clothed by Him and His righteousness so that we will be able to come before you whom we should be afraid of, whom we should run the other way from. But we are able now to approach you boldly before your throne of grace to seek help in this life. And Lord, we long for the life to come when we will be face to face with you forever and ever. Would you cause us to hear and to see this example today that the commands that you have given to us are not burdensome or heavy, but are good gifts that flow from your heart of love. But more importantly, Lord, would you help us to see that there is no way we'll ever obey perfectly, but there is one you have sent to obey perfectly in our place. And may we forever give you thanks for his righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.